Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hi everyone it's sophia welcome back to work in progress Today, I'm speaking with entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, and nonprofit leader Andrew Yang. Andrew first came to prominence in many people's minds during the 2020 presidential election, where he ran for president on a platform of universal basic income. His innovative ideas have inspired people all over the country and the world, and we are now seeing UBI programs launching all across the nation. Born and raised in New York, Andrew has been a champion for education and progress his entire life. In 2009, he started Venture for America, which has worked to empower thousands of young entrepreneurs across the country. He was named Presidential Ambassador of Entrepreneurship by the Obama administration and a champion of change. In the last year, Andrew founded Humanity Forward, a nonprofit organization which has provided over a million dollars in basic income grants to New Yorkers struggling due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And now he's trying to continue that work by running for mayor of New York in the 2021 election. Andrew and I have also had the pleasure of working together on some great activist causes over the years. We helped to create an organization with a bunch of other incredible activists called Defeat by Tweet to use Donald Trump's cruelty on social media against him to raise political capital and funds for local organizations that were run by incredible black activists across America. And during 2020 and into the Senate runoffs, we worked together on a program called Win Both Seats to ensure that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock got elected in Georgia and that we could take back the Senate and get this American Rescue Plan going. Very exciting stuff. 
It's been so much fun to work with Andrew behind the scenes, to witness his advocacy on the national stage. And on today's episode, it was such a pleasure to talk to him about everything from personal to professional to political. We discussed what it's like having immigrant parents, his experience growing up in New York, in a Taiwanese family, what he loves most about New York City, how he balances his life as a father and as a political candidate, and what he's learned working in nonprofits, both advocating for people and for better education policy. I'm incredibly inspired by Andrew. He's dynamic, engaging, and so very busy. I feel very grateful that he made some time to talk with me and to be here with us. Enjoy. Hi. <laughs> Sophia, it's great to see you. It's, it's been far too long. I know. It's so good to see you. It's funny. You know, we were we were on all those like text threads and doing all the things for the election and then the Georgia runoff and Win both like, seats, Sophia, uh, the greatest freaking thing I've been a part of in, uh, I don't know, like a few months. <laughs> God, wasn't win, win both seats was truly the best. First of all, our text chain went off in the best way every day. And just to kind of get that final energetic push over the line to take the Senate back, to actually have progress, to see COVID relief and vaccinations happening and, and to know that we helped, it feels crazy, right? It, it feels so good. Every time I think about those races, I still feel a sense of joy and mm -hmm. uh, pride because mm -hmm. you and I together raised about $3 million for uh, the Atlanta Senate races. Mm -hmm. And John Ossoff won by about 1%, 54,000 votes or so uh, out of 4.5 million votes cast. So can we say that we helped like 100% because, you know, like a few million dollars and, you know, in our case, um, weeks on the ground, knocking on doors, mm -hmm. uh, maybe uh, hundreds of volunteers. And we are seeing very clearly the impact of those victories because you get the American Rescue Plan across the finish line with zero Republican votes. <laughs> you know, you, you mm -hmm. need to have Kamala come in and be the tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. It's $1.9 trillion dollars. Uh, everyone gets $1,400 checks. Uh, we may cut child poverty in half. And it's genuinely, Sophia, in part because people like you uh, stepped up to help win those Georgia races. So the fact that we saw clearly how important those races were and, and played a role makes me really proud. Yeah. And, and it really, it reminds me, I don't know if you feel this, but there are definitely days where I look at everything going on in the world and I think, I'm just one person. What can I do? And then I remember when each of us as individuals teams up together and really pushes for a more just tomorrow, there's potential. And it's it's that kind of potential, you know, in this present moment, obviously coming out of the last election year, moving forward into all the exciting things you're currently doing, including running for mayor of New York City. I, I want to get into all of that. But before we do, I actually want to go even further back than the start of 2020. I want to go to like childhood andrew wow because so many people know <laughs> so many people know my guests as they are today but i'm always curious about how you became this way i know that you grew up in new york just outside of albany you actually grew up in schenectady and i grew up with a bunch of new york and new jersey family so schenectady has always been one of my favorite words to say since i was a little kid uh it is a fun word i agree 
Schenectady, I just, as a kid, when I got it, I felt so cool. I imagine it was less cool for you since you grew up there and it felt more obvious. But talk to us about growing up in that part of New York. What was your world like when you were, you know, eight, nine, ten years old? Oh, thanks, Sophia. I uh, I was born in Schenectady, but I did move closer to New York City when I was uh, four years old or so. Though I do oh, remember you moved Schenectady. that early. Um, yeah, and then I spent well, a couple of summers realize. upstate too. So, uh, like, okay. I, I often say I grew up upstate just kind of, you know, as like a, a bit of an oversimplification. Mm. Uh, but I do remember the house in Schenectady and our yellow Chevy. And my father was a physicist for GE. He and my mom met as graduate students. They immigrated uh, here from Taiwan. And so my brother and I, first, I'm so glad I had an older brother. So glad. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> like, you look so relieved when you say that. Why? What, what, what did an older brother mean to you? Well, because we, we were the first generation born in this country. And so I always at least had my brother to explain stuff to me. Mm. Um, and then when we were in school, we were two of the only Asian kids in our school. And for better or for worse... My teachers called me by my brother's name all the time uh, because he had shown up before me. And, uh, you know, so he was two years older than me. And so then by the time I got there, they just like called me by his name, which probably is not a great thing. Um, but I, I used to say, it's like, well, at least he was good in school. So, <laughs> so, so but I, I remember growing up just feeling very nerdy and awkward and out of place, uh, very introverted. Uh, I'd also skipped kindergarten, so I was smaller and scrawnier than my classmates uh, mm-hmm. essentially all the time um, and felt very self-conscious about that. Uh, so I escaped a lot by reading science fiction books and playing Dungeons and Dragons with my brother and kind of having this imaginary world at home. It's one reason why I feel very saddened for kids today uh, with social media because Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, for them they never actually feel alone (laughs) you know like like they go home and like their classmates are still with them Um, Mm -hmm. in my case like you know I I definitely felt a degree of a need to enter my own little world that I Mm -hmm. frankly owe my brother a lot of um, because he was a bit older and would introduce me to uh, various books uh, and games I, I sound very nerdy because I was. <laughs> I like it. Look, I grew up an only child, so I I read a lot. It was kind of the thing I got to do in my house. And also my parents really encouraged that kind of exploration for me. You know, they always had a book to hand me. Was it the same in your house? I mean, your dad being a physicist, I imagine there was a lot of intellectual prowess under one roof. So was was reading really encouraged for you? What what did your parents kind of push you and your brother towards? Well, my, my parents, because they were immigrants, uh, didn't really understand what my brother and I were doing at any moment in time. The D&D <laughs> didn't translate. No, it really didn't. So we, we would find our own pursuits. Certainly, the, like the message from my parents was do well in school. But hmm. my parents were very busy and uh, they, they worked until dinner time. And so... For the first number of years of school, my brother and I went to a sitter, which I'm super grateful for, um, Mrs. Ingram. And I, I'm super grateful because, frankly, like to the extent that I, I uh, you know, like I learned how to play sports or poker or watch movies or like any of that stuff, it, it was because I went to the Ingrams. <laughs> like like, like um, we'd go there and 
you know, there, there was a neighborhood with a bunch of kids and we would play sports and fight, honestly. Like we had games that were essentially just fights. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I'm super grateful because the, this stuff, you know, it made me feel like I, I understood this country better, frankly, because mm. my, my parents were, were very clueless. Um, I'm going to say something. This is probably going to people are going to judge my parents and I feel bad about that, but whatever. I went into school one day and I was like maybe fourth or fifth grade or something like that. And, and I revealed that I went to sleep in the clothes that I wore all day, pretty much every night. That like my parents never really got the concept of pajamas. <laughs> so so I would just like whatever I was wearing, I would just lie down and then that was that. Then I would, you know, change for the next day. But but then when when my teacher found this out, they were like appalled. <laughs> I don't understand being appalled at that. Honestly, all I'm thinking as you're telling this story is so your parents were decades ahead of the rest of us in this pandemic because no one has changed their clothes since like March of 2020. Yeah, they they might have just been ahead of the curve. Simplification. But yeah. all, all jokes aside, I, I am curious, what was your parents' immigration story? Because I, I don't know if it feels kind of like legend to you since it's a generation away, but certainly for me and my family, you know, my grandmother and great-grandparents coming on a boat from Italy, you know, through Ellis Island has this sort of lore. And then my dad actually, so from... I guess on my dad's side of things, I'm first generation because he came to America in the 60s and he eventually became a green card holder. But my dad didn't become a citizen until I was 12. Wow. So I helped no, him no study. No wonder you have such New York roots, Sophia. Oh, I think yeah. you landed Ellis Island and the whole thing. I helped my dad study for his citizenship test. I made flashcards. Remember when we were kids and you had like the little plastic box that all your totally. flashcards went in yeah, with? The yeah. So I had a little file section of you know, civics to help my dad study for his test. So I have such nostalgia about this sort of idea of coming here for the American dream. Where on the spectrum does that fall in your family? Yeah, I mean, I figured this all out much later. uh, Mm -hmm. And I was kind of clueless about it for uh, most of my childhood. But my parents both came over from Taiwan. Their circumstances were a bit different. My father grew up on a peanut farm with no floor in southern Taiwan, uh, which I saw for the first time when I was a teenager. And I was like, holy cow, dad. <laughs> like, wow. I don't know how you, how you managed to get from here to there. Um, so my, my father tested into National Taiwan University from the farm. And I asked him once, that's like, hey, why do you study physics? He was like, so I could uh, go to the States. And so at that time, mm-hmm. the United States would accept students from Taiwan who were studying various sciences, honestly. So my, my father got his degree in physics in Taiwan and then came to the States and got his PhD in physics at UC Berkeley, where mm. he met my mom. And my mom at the time was an undergraduate at Berkeley, and then she went to get her master's at Berkeley. But it was a little different for my mom because my mom didn't grow up on a farm. My mom was the daughter of a professor. And her mm her father was actually a visiting professor at Berkeley when she was a student there. So between my parents, my mom is definitely the classy one. And my dad is sort of the roughneck one. And they talked all about how my dad uh, kind of misled her during their courtship (laughs) about how he was going to, you know, never let her wash dishes again and like all all this other stuff. And then after um, they tied the knot, then, uh, you know, like some of that stuff didn't come to pass. But they, they, got together at Berkeley as students. My brother was born in San Francisco. And then uh, when they moved to Schenectady, I was born. So uh, there are pictures of them as 
newlyweds in, in California, and it, it's uh, I think the some of the the first memories I, I have of them were as you know like relatively young parents still in upstate New York. That's so sweet. So in addition to the D and D that maybe they didn't understand, what else was kind of keeping your focus as a kid? You know, books and games. Yeah, my parents' drill was like get into a good college, mm-hmm. uh, and so as Asian parents, like that took the form of piano lessons. So I started mm-hmm. playing piano when I was five, and uh, they had us go to Chinese school on Saturdays, and I was really bad at Chinese, so I would get left back regularly at this Chinese school, uh, which is oh, fine, no. whatever. <laughs> like Are you any the, better now, or or you just never caught still up? Still not very good. Um, <laughs> and and so my what about with the piano? There was a point when I was pretty good at piano. Uh, My high point was uh, I performed in like a youth concert at Carnegie Hall. Um, I did make a tape for college. So, you know, like there was like me playing the Rachmaninoff prelude in G minor or something like that. Uh, Oh, and the other thing is my parents were like, you need a sport to get to college. So they sent me to tennis camp so I I could make the high school tennis team. So, uh, but it was very utilitarian, honestly. It was Mm -hmm. like, well, like time to... Make you seem well-rounded. <laughs> so, Honestly, at this point, make... I'm so envious. I I started taking tennis lessons about a year and a half ago. I played for one year when I was nine. So you can imagine that as a grown adult human woman, I am not good. You remind me a bit of my wife, Evelyn, because uh, she also tried to pick up tennis fairly recently. Mm. And I know, like, you should stick with it. Like, uh, tennis is, like, a great sport for us all as we get a little bit older and more rickety. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to stick with it, honestly. And I think the reason that I'm very comfortable being self-deprecating, which you have to be as an actor, because what nobody knows is that even if you're, quote-unquote, successful as an actor, you go on thousands of auditions for jobs you never get. So I'm very used to being like, well, that didn't work out, which is kind of the way I feel every time I try to serve and it goes in the wrong direction. Um, you know, that's true for entrepreneurship too. And it's one reason why I'm passionate about our schools trying to prepare our kids somewhat differently. Um, because if you're trying to get something done, like in a sales or entrepreneurial context, if you, you have a success rate of 25, 30%, you're doing great. Great. (laughs) I know. know So you, you have this sort of well-rounded, uh, you know, Andrew on paper getting ready for college apps. I, I know that you went to Brown and then you went to Columbia Law School. What what was that like kind of getting into high school? What else came into your life? What else was influencing you that led you on that path to college? I made a very, very strange decision when I was 15 years old, um, which is uh, I went to a boarding school in New Hampshire uh, called Phillips Exeter. You decided to go to a boarding school? I genuinely did. I know. Even though boarding school is 80s code for your parents hate you and are shunning you. <laughs> but, but in my case... I went to summer program and some of uh, the folks there went to a school called Exeter and said, oh, we like it. And then I went to my parents and was like, can I go to Exeter? And my mom just about jumped for joy. It was crazy. She had like the application in her hand like a day later being like, you're doing this. Uh, and, and my motivation was partially because my brother was leaving for college at Berkeley, actually. 
And mm-hmm. so the prospect of being left alone with my parents did not excite me. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I would have been 15 and unable to drive, which also seemed really pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> and so so that, those are some of the things that made me think, hey, let me go to this place called Exeter. So I, mm-hmm. I went to boarding school in New Hampshire for the last two years, which was a very, very big adjustment. And I wasn't happy there for the first year, but it was 100% my decision to go. So if you decide mm-hmm. to do something and it's not working out, then you kind of have no one to blame but yourself. <laughs> so, so, so you look at yourself and be like, all right, I got to make this work. I got to improve it, uh, um, it and be happier with it. What led to that unhappiness in your first year there? And then what changed in the second? I felt very out of place at Exeter. And if there are pictures, I think I was objectively out of place. <laughs> like I, I think there are some photos, Sophia. You can find them. Um, and so it, it was interesting because, like, I felt out of place in my public school, uh, even though, you know, like, I'd found my play, my niche. But it, it was a real struggle. And I'd grown up with uh, the, these people and had become friends with, you know, some, some of my uh, childhood friends that I'm still in touch with to this day. But I still felt like my public school was not really pushing or challenging me in a particular way. So I decided to go to Exeter, which was a very academically rigorous environment. Mm-hmm. But these kids were from totally different backgrounds than anyone I'd been uh, around. A lot of them were from New York City. A lot of them were from all over the country, like San Francisco. I mean, Exeter takes from all over. And it was a very high-pressure environment. You don't see your families, so it, it, it did have this uh, kind of Lord of the Flies vibe a little bit. <laughs> like mm-hmm. You're in a dorm and there are curfews. And it was just a, a bit of an adjustment for me and there was also a sense that your status was measured in part by what college you were going to get into. Mm. And this, so there's just a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, uh, when I actually went back and spoke at Exeter when I was running for president, and I shared some of these stories with them, just asking, it's like, hey, have things changed? And, uh, you know, like, like Exeter has gone through a real evolution in some respects because um, they've had some kids who've been really unhappy, and so they're they're trying to evolve in different ways. Did that feeling come from that intense pressure, which to me sort of feels like this blanket pressure of success and capitalism that gets thrust onto young kids when they're applying to college? Was it sort of that be successful, prove yourself, rat race kind of mentality? Or or do you think that some of what made you feel a little out of place was a further continuation of what you said you experienced in elementary school, which was that it wasn't very diverse. You know, you and your brother were kind of two of two. Did you experience a class that was made up of more diverse and different people when you went to boarding school or was it more of the same? Uh, Exeter and, for this matter, Brown and Columbia were all uh, statistically much more diverse in terms of how many Asian Americans were there, frankly. My experience went from being one of one (laughs) or or so at my public school to, I think that Exeter was maybe 14 or 15 percent Asian American. Um, It's pretty high. So it it was probably more along the lines of what you were just describing as the meritocratic culture and this kind of rat race that got started young at Exeter. And I do think that our meritocracy in these selective schools ends up shaping people in a particular way that Mm. makes it very difficult for folks to go back and either inspect or amend the system that produced us. 
uh, and uh, one of the things I, I just randomly tweeted a, a while ago, but ended up uh, being very well received, was it's hard to tell how fucked up a system is if you've succeeded in that system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I do feel that way about uh, a lot of the elite educational institutions. I love Brown. I mean, I think Brown is uh, the most human of the selective schools I've been exposed to, honestly. But that there has been some kind of pummeling <laughs> that, that, mm-hmm. that a lot of folks have been subject to as they've come up. And I think one of one of the this is a bit of a non sequitur, but you know that that scandal where parents were spending a lot of money getting their kids into selective schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like I think that's like one manifestation of it. It is just that mm-hmm. there are these particular institutions that bestow a certain type of status on folks, and then uh, a lot of families rear their kids, saying, "Well, you know, you need to uh, get into these schools, or uh, you're not going to have the kind of life that you want." And kids internalize that very, very early. So uh, I think that that was one of the things I was struggling with because Exeter at that time was very much like a hub of that kind of mindset. Mm. Is, this, is, is this getting too uh, sad? I don't know, Sophia. No, <laughs> it's not meant I, to, I, I mean, don't think it's sad. Honestly, I, I, think, I think it's really fascinating. And, and to your point, I, I think that when we reach these moments along the roads of our lives where we have more tools in our tool belt, you know, where we understand more about systems and we can look back, just like you said, on the systems that raised us. I think that's kind of required. I, I get that some people maybe think it's a drag. I love this stuff. I, I, I like to analyze and, and inspect so that we can envision bigger and better moving forward. And, and I know that you do too. I mean, I, I imagine that there was some version of that spark in you that led you, you know, from uh, thinking you were going to be a lawyer to jumping away from law and and working in startups. Can can you tell people a little bit about that? Because to your point, you know, especially as a young man, there's so much pressure about you know, go to the good college and get the big job. And, you know, you're a a son of immigrants and I grew up in a family of immigrants. And I joke that like, you know, my uncle Raymond used to be like, you're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer or a doctor. Like that was the thing in my family. You were going to get one of those jobs. And I'm, I'm curious, how did you have the courage after Brown, after Columbia Law? How, how did you say, you know, JK, LOL, I don't think this is for me. Yeah, so I graduated from law school. I get a job in New York. I'm making six figures as a 24-year-old, and I don't like the job at all. And so I think to myself, well, why am I doing this job? (laughs) And then just to try and figure out why I was doing the job, I went to a department store and bought gifts for my family and was like, maybe I'm doing this for the money, so let me try that out. So I, I bought nice gifts for my mom, my dad, and my brother, and gave them those gifts over Thanksgiving. And then I was like, nope, that's not it. <laughs> Where it's like, this is not a good enough reason for me to do this. Yeah, the high from uh, that and, lasts all of 37 seconds. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, and it, it actually did make me question why my parents came to the US. It was like, did they come mm-hmm. to the US so their son could make a good living? And then maybe kind of self-replicate, like maybe I could find, you know, like a, a nice woman that, that, you know, wanted to try and like, <laughs> like repeat the process. I was like, there, there had to be something more to why my parents fought to 
raise my brother and me here. And so I left the law and my parents were not pleased by this at all. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I leave the law. I owed six figures in law school alone. So this was objectively like a poor decision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I left the law to start a dot com that had its mini rise and maximum fall. Uh, And during that time, my parents still told their friends I was a lawyer because that was a much easier story for Asian parents to share than, oh, you know, our son went and left it all behind to start this dot com that flopped. Uh, And I still owed the six figures in law school debt. So my mid-20s was this kind of quest for some alternative to climbing the corporate ladder. And climbing the corporate ladder, I, I said at the time, I was like, look, I don't have uh, wife, kids, mortgage. Like, I don't really have any obligations. Like, why am I acting like I have obligations that that uh, I don't have instead of trying to find something meaningful? And the dot-com that I co-founded was, you're going to love this, it was called stargiving.com. It was a dot-com to raise money for celebrity-affiliated nonprofits more effectively. Um, and the internet was very new back then. And so the thought was that we could find a celebrity who wanted to help a nonprofit, and then we'd set up a click-to-donate button uh, on star giving and then one person who clicked on the button met the celebrity and then uh everyone who clicked got shown various sponsors and we thought we'd generate millions for charity and do it much more you know it was a very dot-com 1.0 idea and so when that company flopped it was very difficult for me and uh, my confidence was shot i was in my mid to late 20s in new york city in debt not making a lot of money all my mm-hmm. law school classmates were starting to make money, uh, and I moved into an apartment with a roommate to save money. And I started throwing parties on the side as like a side hustle. I joined another startup, so it, it was it, you know it was like that kind of New York story for mm-hmm. me for a number of years. What kind of parties were you guys throwing? Well, so what happened was I uh, I had a birthday party, and a lot of people I didn't know showed up, and so I said maybe there's a business here. So then I <laughs> I got together with some friends and started throwing parties, especially after 9-11 in Tribeca, because after 9-11, like all of downtown Manhattan kind of emptied out and there were these bars and clubs that were trying to survive. And so I would just go and like fill those venues up with 20 something year olds who wanted to drink and party. And so I did that for a number of years in my late 20s. Uh, I was like, a, I also started tutoring on the side. And I was working at a healthcare software startup. So I became a very scrappy type in part because I had a company fail from under me. And so I always thought, well, if the next thing fails, I should have something to fall back on. Uh, I was a little bit right. burnt, uh, you know, for a few years. Totally. I, I think that's a very fair reaction, especially when you when you know that something could work and you have an ideal behind it and it, it doesn't work, it feels kind of like a loss, you know, more akin to almost a death than just a missed business opportunity because it, it's, it's your core, you know, it's something about your belief system. Well, and it's very tough because it's public too. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a creative, you might feel this, oh, like yeah. there, you've been in a, you know, obviously like dozens of projects, but there might be a project that you were like, this is, uh, mm-hmm. my project and I put put my heart and soul into it. And then if that fails, like you feel it very, very deeply and personally. Yeah. And that was my experience with the first company I started because I went out to everyone I knew and was like, I'm starting this company. Like, you know, it was very public, yeah. at least that the company existed. <laughs> and then its failure was also thus similarly very well known to everyone I knew. Um, mm. And so there was a period when I felt like 
everyone I knew regarded me as a failure. And it was very, very difficult. But then you start realizing that's mainly in your head, not theirs. And that, you know, like, you know, no one actually is looking at you saying like, ha ha, Andrew, you started this company and you failed, like you suck. Um, even though you, you might uh, think they're thinking that at least for a little while. Yeah, it, it is funny when you realize that people are so concerned with what's going on in their lives that they're not really paying attention to what's going on in yours. Um, did you, did you have a particular project that you felt more like that was much more personally yours and that, uh, whether it succeeded or failed, you, you were going to be oh, yeah. um, either elated or hurt by that? Oh yeah. I, it's interesting. I met a really incredible writer who wrote an unbelievably smart kind of political, you know, espionage thriller story, but he wrote it during the Obama era. And what I've learned about TV is that, you know, when we, for example, when we feel safe politically, we want to watch the West Wing. When we feel like we're in danger politically, we really want to watch Schitt's Creek. We can't handle scary political content when the world is politically scary. And so when we felt safer, like there was hope, like the energy was, yes, we can make it yeah, better those were and, good times. and do smarter. <laughs> it was great times. Um, you know, you and I both got to work on really, really cool stuff during that administration. We were excited about exploring, you know, the dark web and Russian misinformation and all of these things that this script was about. And then by the time we met and we kind of finessed it to fit for me rather than this woman who'd been, you know, in the game forever and was 55 and all of these things, we made this unbelievable pilot. We had this unbelievable cast. And honestly, everyone was like, we really love it and it's really good and we can't bear to watch it. Like it's no, too, this is, this in, terrible. in the Trump era for, for the television studio, they were just yeah. like, it's too close to home. Like we can't, we don't know how to market this. We don't like, you can't sell this as a cool idea because it's happening and it's Because it's horrible. real, it's too real. You know, oh, no. and my poor writer, Dave was like, I didn't know what was coming. And we were all so sad, but you, you know, you have to, you have to understand where things work in the landscape and you know you guys were early honestly with your idea for this click to donate thing now everybody does it but yeah that was so hard for me it was so hard to take that l and really hard even though in my head i understood the landscape emotionally it just felt like i made a thing i cared about and it didn't work for me and yeah, you, you put your tough. heart and soul into something, work closely mm-hmm. with people, produce a pilot that it sounds like <laughs> you were super proud of. It was so good. <laughs> but, you know. We, there should be a, there should be a way do? for us to see these pilots because I, I've, I've now heard of a number of pilots yeah. that seem like they'd be awesome and I we can all imagine. I, I'm still really close to everyone from that project and I was actually saying the other day, I was like, when do you think like we can get the rights back and maybe make it a movie? <laughs> like this would be a sick Netflix movie now, you know? Um, so who knows? We'll see. There's always, I think, an option. But I, I, it strikes me that even in my storytelling I'm so drawn to activism. I'm drawn to politics. I'm drawn to social change. And, and you know, when you were talking about wanting to get out of the legal world, not wanting to fall victim to this estimation that you were supposed to have, you know, the six-figure job and, and do the thing that didn't make you that happy just so you could go to the department store, that that's a reaction to the, you know, purely 
average uh, capitalistic success story of the quote American dream. And, and so I'm curious for you, where did the desire to envision a new way forward, a new way of doing business, a new way of participating in the economy, which to me really is rooted in activism and political change, where did that come from? Was that a natural drive? Did you have a mentor? Was it like an itch you had that you needed to scratch? How, how did that start? No, it, what's interesting, Sophia, is I was fundamentally or deeply affected by going to Columbia Law School and seeing a lot of really smart young people show up and then having their ambitions shaped and channeled in a particular way. Mm. Uh, and if you go into corporate law in New York City at that time, or frankly, I think pretty much ever since, the nature of the work that we were doing was that we were ministering to very, very large corporate transactions and making sure that the documents are okay. So mm. I, I started to compare myself to grease on a wheel. It was like we were like transaction costs. Um, mm. But because you're talking about transactions that are worth hundreds of millions, then the lawyers get paid you know, eventually like, you know, a million or two. Uh, and so if you're a young person, you're a lawyer in training, then you get paid six figures to maybe become like a better transaction cost. And uh, I said at one point, I was like, this law firm is like a temple to the squandering of human potential. Um, mm. uh, you know, and because and, 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 you had some of the smartest, best educated people in the country doing work that was objectively not very productive or even interesting. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you know, I am like, uh, hopefully that's not too, you know, again, I mean, not, not an indictment of anyone, uh, you know, we all, <laughs> like, like well, you know, we're, we're all doing things. So for me saying, okay, like I'm going to try and do something that I'm excited about and proud of. And, and I read a book called Built to Last about entrepreneurship. And it's like, I really want to try and become one of those mm. and then falling on my face so thoroughly mm. uh, was very, very difficult. And then I spent a number of years trying to become better at building a business and or managing a company. And through really great fortune, more than anything else, uh, I became the head of an education company in New York City called Manhattan Prep when I was 31. I was the first teacher outside of the founder at this company uh, maybe, maybe five years prior. But I had seen it as something uh, of like a side gig. Mm -hmm. And then the founder decided to leave to start a charter school for underprivileged kids here in New York. He's got a beautiful soul. And so he asked me to take over the business for him. And then I spent six years running that company. And if you run a company, you become kind of like the head of an extended family a bit, you know, like the company had a couple hundred employees and we expanded around the country. And so I'd like every year I'd host all the instructors for this convocation. It was like, mm. you know, also kind of nerdy. And when, when that company was bought in 2009, that, that's when I had this soul searching that you were describing a bit of. It's like, what, what is the meaning? And, and I was driven by this reaction I still had to those hundreds of people I went to law school with and the hundreds of people I worked with. And I said, why is it that we're turning our really talented people into and at the time, it was bankers, consultants, lawyers, and now you'd put technologists in there too, mm -hmm. who eight times out of 10 are not actually solving the most important problems. Like they're, they're right. just driving our capitalist economy to your early, earlier point, like in a very specific direction. Yeah. Uh, and so then I thought, well, the reason why that's happening is because when you graduated from Columbia Law the way I did, there were many firms that were just waiting with a pile of money for you and they recruited you when you were a second year and it was like the path of least resistance. And those recruiting pipelines existed for 
all of these fields at all of the selective institutions. And so I thought, well, what we need is we need a pathway to entrepreneurship and building things of meaning that will compete with those firms. Mm -hmm. And so I started a nonprofit called Venture for America to try and provide this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it would train young people to be entrepreneurs in Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, Cleveland, all these cities around the country. And I spent six years building that organization in part as like a reaction to my formative educational years. Mm -hmm. And it was only after running that organization for six years that I realized that our economy was transforming in really fundamental ways that were going to be disastrous for a lot of people Mm. that I then decided to run for president. And that's when you and I met. Um, (laughs) But in a way, I think my activism was catalyzed by what I'd seen and experienced uh, kind of climbing the ranks here in New York. Mm-hmm. Looking at the trends in the economy that are very disastrous for a lot of people, you know, this absurd wealth gap that is growing. I, I always found it so interesting, you know, during the last administration in particular, the 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 just out in the open obsession with kind of obscene wealth, but also the demonization of people who are more obviously viewed as successful. Like I, I, I always laughed that Donald Trump always wanted to come for the actors and be like, well, you elites. And I'm like, bro, I don't know any actors with jets, but you have one. And like all your Wall Street friends have them. And come on, let's have real conversations about what these elite economic classes look like. But those people often get to operate in the shadows. And it's not lost on me that, you know, any of us, at least for me, I'll I'll personalize it, you know, I am incredibly grateful that my job has allowed me to feel financially stable in my life. Also, I'm very clearly aware that some of that is because I have a union. I have healthcare because, my, because I'm in a union. I, I only have any protections because I'm a union worker. And so when people say, you know, why are you always advocating for an increase in minimum wage? It won't affect you anyway. I'm like, it affects every person I work with, all my oh, other union beautiful. guys. Go unions, totally yeah. agree. You know, and, and, and for me, I, I think people also forget that, you know, actors have years where they're working and making money and years where they don't make any money at all. And... For me, the the thing that could not feel clearer is that we're really all on the same team and we need a rising tide to lift all ships. And currently it feels like the the tide has gone through, and this this will show my Canadian on my dad's side, the tide has really gone through the locking system. So, you know, the <laughs> ship went in and, and then that lock was raised, but all the other locks have stayed at low tide. And I, I feel like we're we're locking people out of the ability to participate more meaningfully in the economy. And that's what really makes me curious. You know, as you mentioned, your presidential campaign centered a lot on innovative economic ideas. You know, you talked about a digital credit system. You talked about a universal basic income. Can you explain a little bit about the digital social credit, uh, you know, the DSC, as you call it? Can you talk to us a little bit about how the economy might work better for us? Yeah, I would, I would love to just talk about the pandemic because mm-hmm. one of the themes of this conversation with you, Sophia, is that there's been this 
kind of myth of the meritocracy that has suffused mm. our our country where it's like if you're successful it's because you worked hard and you deserve it. and if you're not successful then somehow you messed up somehow and mm. and uh, and then we have all these educational institutions that are kind of reinforcing that in a particular way and the pandemic hopefully just kind of shreds that for good because obviously it's not anyone's fault that they're bus tour company or a bar or a restaurant or a theater company or mm-hmm. whatever it is like has shut down for a period of time. Like it has nothing to do with your individual work ethic or, or any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and what happened with the pandemic was some of what I'd feared would happen because of advancing technology that was just going to end up pushing a lot of Americans to the side and so my, my goal with universal basic income, and I'm really curious what you thought of when, when, when you first heard about, you know, the universal basic income proposal when I was um, running for president. Now versions of that are being passed into law by, <laughs> by Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and, and everyone else. I mean, we're going to get a tax credit that could alleviate child poverty. Thanks in part, again, to you and me. And uh, Rev Warnock and John Ossoff and all, all of that. That's so huge. I, I actually got to help work on um, the Compton Pledge here in LA. You know, we've Good been for doing. It's so, so cool. We've been doing so much amazing, you know, local grassroots organizing here, passing Measure J to make sure we can get restorative justice as part of the LA County budget. Getting this, you know, universal basic income pilot program launched in Compton after Michael Tubbs did it as the mayor in Stockton. There's great stuff happening here. And I, I think so often about how it is a lot of what we were talking about in the primaries. Um, yes. And one of the things that I would love your help talking about, because I, I certainly have not done a good enough job uh, about it, is that I think this is imperative for women in particular, mm-hmm. because women right now do the vast majority of the unrecognized and uncompensated work in our society. Mm-hmm. And so if you, for example, just start having a universal basic income, it's going to disproportionately benefit the the, the folks who right now the market is pushing to the side, which yeah. is is going to be women in a lot more cases. And, uh, you know, and one of the things I said on the trail was that, look, like my wife is at home with our boys, one of whom is autistic. Like, what does the market value her work at? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. zero. What does GDP value her work at? Zero. Like, mm-hmm. does that seem right to you? No. Um, uh, no, yeah, no, it's the, no. It's, yeah, no, it's the dumbest thing ever. Yeah, I, I saw an amazing article recently that talked about how valued at current minimum wage, not a $15 minimum wage, current $7.25 an hour minimum wage, the unpaid labor of women in America is a $1.4 trillion a year deficit. Yes. And, 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 and so if you look at that, uh, th- there's no mystery why, frankly, like, uh, you know, so many of our kids are struggling. I mean, there are a lot mm-hmm. of reasons uh, our kids are struggling, but a lot of it is we're just like making it harder and harder for parents to spend time with their children because we're mm-hmm. treating it like it has no value. And then, you know, mm-hmm. we make daycare super expensive and people have to make really, really impossible choices. Mm-hmm. So that $1.4 trillion, like if you were to properly value it, uh, imagine a world where all of that actually was just recognized and then just distributed as cash. It was like, guess what? If, if you're doing this kind of caregiving work, we're just going to pay you. Yeah. And if, if we did that, the world would be better. Like mm-hmm. we'd be recognizing more of the actual value that's getting delivered. And so uh, it was one of the cases I was making on the trail was like, look, like if, if you're for gender equity, then we should just be putting money into people's hands immediately uh, because it's just going to help women get what you all should have been getting for, you know, years and decades and generations. And yeah. that's just right now, like the, the market is intrinsically anti 
uh, women. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was a case that I, I was making, and I don't think I ever succeeded. As you can probably tell, even listening to this, you're like, hey, Andrew, that still wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it, I love it. And I think it is an incredibly important conversation to have. I'm, I'm really curious, you know, because you brought up Evelyn, you brought up your kids. How do you guys manage to balance this, this big life, you know, your work, your foundation, humanity forward, all of these things you're doing. And, and you said you've got two boys at home. What's personal life like for you guys? How, how do you balance a family dynamic while you're trying to change the world? Well, first, uh, I'm super grateful to Evelyn, and I express it every day. Uh, but I have to say, running for mayor of New York City is vastly superior to running for president. Really? Because, yeah, be, be, in, in these direct ways, because mm-hmm. I see my family every morning and night. And then today, as an example, we went to the Yankees game to celebrate opening day uh, as a mayoral event. But my wife and two boys were there and we just spent the afternoon at the game. And that was like totally like a fine way to spend the afternoon while you're campaigning for mayor. Mm. Um, So I I try and combine the two Mm -hmm. as much as possible. And this is light years better than the presidential was where uh, during, during the presidential you and i had met for the first time in iowa Mm -hmm. like it would be like hey i'm uh, leaving on monday i'll be back you know sunday (laughs) (laughs) like that was really hard and the fact that the family was strong and whole during those months is really just testament to how fortunate i am to have evelyn as a partner because she just was a rock and a rock star but the the mayoral campaign is vastly superior in that like the the family feels like they're a part of it and Evelyn is you know more New York than I am in the sense that she was born and raised here and like grew up in Queens and uh, went to Stuyvesant which is a very New York school you you, yeah. you probably haven't heard of it yeah so yeah it's it's been great on that side and and Evelyn's really embraced kind of the activism spirit of the last several years for us. Sophia, because it, it's funny. Most people met me when I was running for for president, but I started and run a nonprofit for you know six and a half years prior to that. All right. Uh, and then running for president was kind of an extension of that activism, where I started an organization because I, I was trying to fix the economy uh, to make it work better for people, and I was mm-hmm. like, well, the only way to fix it is to start just giving money out to people very quickly and directly, yeah. um, which was very dramatic sounding at the time, but. I thought the only way to do that would be to run for president. And then that achieved, you know, many of its goals. And then now New York City's in a, frankly, in like in a very, very tough condition. And I think I can help. Um, we're going to try and make this the anti-poverty city. The UBI trials you're talking about in Compton uh, and Stockton, which I am so thrilled about and excited about. I want to go big here in yeah. New York City. Like I, I want to make this the anti-poverty city because... It's the right thing to do, but I also think it's going to help speed up our recovery. Mm-hmm. Like the, the city, have you spent a lot of time in New York City? It sounds like you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my mom is is a born New Jersey and then raised New Yorker. And so much of my family's there and I've spent so much of my time there, you know, as a kid and also lived there off and on for the last 15 years. So New York feels like, yes. you know, New my, York is the best. We yeah, got to get it back. Yeah, it feels like my second home. And and so th- this is like the next level of activism, Sophia. Mm-hmm. You know, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking to myself, Sophia should run for mayor of whatever town she's in. Oh, thanks. <laughs> because th- this to me is like the, both the need and the challenge mm-hmm. where, like it or not, I, I do think the public sector is going to have to be the 
prime mover in addressing some of the problems we're seeing around us right now. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I think especially, look, it's really also about priorities and investment, right? We have the money. We have the largest fiscal budget on earth. We have so much money. People don't know where the money goes. The Pentagon, you know, spends $2 billion a day. It's like we have the money. Sophia, it, it's so fun because when <laughs> I was running for president, that was the number one question I got. It was like, where are we going to get the money? We have it. And then, and then, and I always had made the argument. I was like, look, we gave $4 trillion to Wall Street when they needed it. Like, you know, uh, yeah. and, and now with COVID, you know, we, we've frankly uh, passed another $4 trillion, which yeah. I love. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> but, fantastic. But, but we clearly but, have it. But we clearly had it the whole time. Yeah, like we we've really had it could the whole have been time. doing something with this four trillion dollars, even in the absence of mm-hmm. of this pandemic. We could be helping people the whole time. Um, you talk about the city. You talk about your family. You're talking about the way that Evelyn has embraced activism and social change, and and we're talking about the many causes that we have been allied on. This is an incredibly profound and difficult moment for the Asian American community. And in terms of how we all can show up, one of the things that's been really well illuminated in conversations I've been lucky enough to have in in our group of friends is the fact that there has always been a lot of mistreatment of the AAPI community here. And there has been a, a bit of a turning the other cheek to it because of this model minority myth. And as we're seeing this moment where clearly our neighbors and friends need us to stand up for and with them, I'm curious, what do you as a, not only as a candidate and an activist, but also as a dad, what do you want to ask people to do to support you right now, to support your family right now and your community right now? I think the heartbreaking increase in violence against Asian Americans really culminates in this sense of dehumanization and alienation. Mm. Uh, Like the man who beat the elderly Asian woman in my neighborhood Mm. said, you don't belong here, uh, you know, precipitating his his attack. Uh, And those words really hurt Asian Americans because there's been this sense, really ever since any of us can remember, that our belonging here is uh, in doubt. And so to the extent that people want to help it's just expressing a degree of caring and fellowship and shared humanity uh, with Asian Americans and let let them know, let us know that you see us as human beings, as Americans, as people who belong here as much as anyone else. And reaching out to, to people maybe that you wouldn't reach out to ordinarily. I, I will say on this podcast uh, that the hashtag that's being used online is Stop Asian Hate which is not a hashtag I love, though I have used it because it seems like it, it's the main one. But like I, I was trying to come up with a, a better alternative because that's you know you can't complain about something if you <laughs> if you can't approve on it. Right. Um, so I, I was thinking about no more hate or and this one was a little bit tongue in cheek. But I was like, what you know, it's not stop Asian hate. It's more like like uh, show Asians love. <laughs> Or something like that, <laughs> like that. Mm. But that that would be my ask uh, for people who want to help is just to show people love. You know, show Asians love. Show people that you care. Yeah, it, it feels like such an immensely important time for us to all be standing in solidarity. I've been so moved by so much of the action that I've seen other communities who experience 
oppression, taking to stand in solidarity. That young man in New York City who started the campaign to have, you know, young black and brown men and anyone else who wanted to volunteer uh, walk elderly Asian Americans home. I was like, this, yeah, beautiful. this is our community, you know, and that's one of the things I will say. I love so much about New York. I uh, I know we're out of time. I have so enjoyed speaking to you today. I'm excited to see what happens with the run. In parting, would you tell our audience their very favorite thing to know, which is what in your life is a work in progress right now? Wow. <laughs> I, I think that my ability to manage uh, being a good dad with uh, running for mayor is a work in progress. It's mm. something that uh, I, I work at every day. So Bea, I'm, I'm so glad to be your friend uh, and your fellow traveler in this. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of need and struggle out there, but uh, talking mm. to you is is genuinely uplifting. Thank you. For me too, my friend. Thank you so much. Every time we talk, I'm like, we're gonna do really good things. We we're we gonna got do this. really good things. Yeah. yeah, and we're gonna get New York City back on its feet. Let's go, New York City. Sophia, I gotta get you out here. You gotta uh, visit us. I can't wait to come home. I'll see you very soon. I hope. I love it. Come home, indeed. Bye, everyone. Bye, Andrew. Thank you. 